This podcast is a recording of a presentation by Professor Bill Lucas on the power of a growth mindset, why certain habits of mind matter in clinical improvement. The presentation was part of a session sponsored by RCVS Knowledge at the SPIVS VMG Focus on Leadership and Management Virtual Summit held on the 1st of December 2020. Bill Lucas is Director of the Centre for Real World Learning and Professor of Learning at the University of Winchester. So it's a real pleasure to be with you and uh, just a very quick introduction that contextualizes my contribution. I'm a professor of learning. I'm interested in how people learn and how people change. For the last decade, I've been working very closely with the Health Foundation and latterly with the new Institute for Healthcare Improvement uh, in Cambridge, this institute. And I'm going to be sharing uh, three aspects of that work with you and try to find some connection with uh, your work. And the three aspects are to argue with you that there are certain habits of mind which really help when you're trying to improve anything. And there's a sort of superpower, which I'll describe as a growth mindset, not my phrase. um, It's Carol Dweck's phrase. And secondly, I'm going to offer you a model developed with um, educationists, with researchers, with clinicians in the health service in the hopes that it might resonate with you and your work. Uh, And then I'm going to just pull back out of that and invite you to consider if you like this kind of approach, how might you train others to do this? What might the leadership implications be for you? Um, If you like to tweet, that's absolutely fine. By all means, uh, screenshot, uh, I'm at LucasLearn, or use the other very many functions that exist in this excellent system. Uh, and just to say, uh, I'm uh, delighted to be supported in this by RCVS Knowledge, the charity partner of the Royal College of Veterinary Services. Um, I want to start, and this may seem slightly weird, with a lawnmower. In fact, a story of a lawnmower that um, took place just 50 minutes ago in this household. This time of year, many of you may also be similarly aware that your lawnmower needs servicing. I took mine uh, to be serviced 10 days ago. It arrived back on Friday. When I tried to use it, it didn't work or didn't work very well. And so I rang them this morning and said, I'm terribly sorry, but it's not working. And within seconds, I had empathy. Then I had thoughtful questions. Then I had excellent communication and then somebody saying, we'll come round now, pick it up. And I'm so sorry you've had this uh, disappointment. I I sensed in that call, not just good customer service, but a whole mindset about wanting to do not just our best, but to improve the quality of what this particular company was doing. And and I was, uh, as I think anybody would have been, very impressed. Now, I don't know enough about what you do, um, uh, you veterinarians, but I am a keen user of your services um, with uh, two dogs and uh, a lot of chickens running around uh, our house. That's last year. Obviously, I'm not yet quite into Christmas. Uh, And I'm particularly interested to see the way that you're moving towards quality improvement Uh, and um, uh, two, two strong conclusions from this recent report. Uh, and high levels of agreement that quality improvement uh, might improve the uh, quality of your care. Uh, And in doing that, you'd be um, following a rich tradition of thought. Um, Historically, lots of this kind of thinking started with uh, aviation. 
uh, and the aviation um, industry has a uh, has an extraordinary um, uh, 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 rate of uh, success, uh, but didn't at one time. Uh, we'd need to go back a little bit beyond this if we were to see the origins of quality improvement. Well, of course, ever since human beings got together, they've, they've probably tried to do things better from the early hunts when we were um, evolving pre-civilization, uh, right through to, well, in the middle of the last century, um, generally attributed to W. Edwards Deming and his work, first of all, in Japan and then uh, in America, and to a st statistician, Walter Schuhart, who, with Deming, began to see that the essence of improving quality in whatever service you work is understanding variation and understanding whether it's just the variation that occurs because we're all different or whether it's the variation that can be overcome. And now, so if I took you to uh, West London NHS Trust, uh, they will be badging a lot of uh, what they do with this phrase, quality improvement, a phrase that was uh, made uh, widely known by Don Berwick at the Institute of Healthcare Improvement in Boston and has now slipped into popular parlance. And I'm hoping it will land, that isn't my black lab, although it might be, um, uh, uh, and it will land with you as something that makes sense uh, whatever scale uh, you're operating, whether you're in a very small practice or a, a much larger one. The uh, uh, two other fathers of this movement, Paul Batalden and Frank Davidoff, uh, have talked about how uh, in a healthcare setting, uh, this is something that is about culture shift. This is not that improvement is one person's job, but it needs to be endemic, ubiquitous in all parts of the system. And I'll come back to that um, when I get to uh, the end of uh, this talk. I want to start by introducing you to an idea, the idea of habits of mind. Uh, and before I do that, I just want to go back a fraction to say that if you're already persuaded that quality improvement might be a good thing, then you may already be familiar with uh, various techniques like run charts to visualize uh, variation, like process maps to see what happens from the moment that somebody calls you and an animal is safely picked up, driver diagrams and uh, uh, audit and feedback and cause and effect diagrams and even a Pareto chart showing the frequency of events. All of those tools you may already be coming across are terrific, but I think that they're not enough. I think that the more fundamental shift here is in our mindset. And that's what I want to try and persuade you in this uh, talk, and I've got about uh, 30 minutes to do that. Um, let's go back uh, to a psychologist, to a psychologist, Lauren Resnick, um, writing predominantly about education and introducing this idea of habits of mind. So being smart, she says, is the habit of persistently trying to understand things to make them work better. And being smart is working to figure things out to varying strategies until a workable solution is found. In other words, being smart is the sum of one's habits of mind. And I think that's a, a helpful, it's almost a proxy for being a good improver. It depends on uh, the kind of habits of mind that you have. Now, whatever discipline you come from, and uh, many vets will have come predominantly from a scientific uh, background, it's perfectly possible to uh, think about a discipline like science as having certain habits of mind. So for example, scientists, uh, tend to be open-minded and appropriately skeptical, uh, keen to see the rational arguments, objective, curious, 
uh, and so forth. Uh, and that's equally possible. And I think it would be a nice um, thought experiment for you to think about what the habits of mind might be for a good improving veterinarian. Um, in other parts of my um, research uh, life, I've looked at this from the perspective of an engineer and with the Royal Academy of Engineering have developed a set of habits of mind for engineers. Um, and you'll see uh, there are six of them, systems thinking, adapting, problem finding, creative problem solving, visualizing and improving, all around a central core that what engineers do is try and make things that work and make things work better. Now, just hang on to that thought, because although you're not engineers, I think there actually are quite a lot of uh, similarities between what you do uh, and what engineers do. Um, uh, one problem, of course, is that not everybody um, wants to improve. Uh, the classic anti-improver is, I guess, Homer Simpson, who kind of thinks that, you know, um, Dole, there's only so much I can do and my brain is already full. And, and I joke because many of our hardworking colleagues will be in that sort of space. I don't believe that anybody comes to work to do a bad job, but nevertheless, they do come to work with all sorts of other things going on in their lives. And there is a tendency that says, well, maybe this improvement thing is a fad or it'll go away, or it's just um, something that uh, I suppose I better go along with. Uh, and that needn't be the case. There is uh, really, really good evidence um, from so many different walks of leadership and management life. Here are just four examples. I'm going to talk about very briefly two of them, Malcolm Gladwell, Outliers, and uh, Carol Dweck, Mindset. And I'm going to suggest to you that there is a particular way of viewing the world that is likely to make us more, um, uh, or to make improvement come more conducively to us. Um, let me start with somebody who I think has made uh, a very significant uh, contribution here, and it's Carol Dweck, and it's her notion of uh, a growth mindset. I don't know if you've come across this before, um, uh, but let me talk you through it. Now, Carol Dweck's um, work uh, is founded on uh, schools and education initially, but I think it expands very well to the professions. And she says, well, she says three things, actually. The first thing she said is that do you know what? When you look at people, there are two kinds of person. Somebody who's uh, what she calls a fixed mindset person and somebody that she calls a growth mindset person who thinks of themselves as having an expandable ability. Now, if you look at that list of characteristics on the left there, and it is an interesting experiment here just to think about your colleagues here or indeed yourself, then you're the kind of person who uh, sees making a mistake as a badge of failure. Uh, and, and it's very keen to hide that from others around them in their team, who's constantly proving what they know, what they can do or how good they are, is unlikely to push themselves. So enjoy safe learning, can actually be effort averse. Um, uh, it's deeply competitive because wants to be seen as the best. And, and funnily enough, or maybe not funnily enough, often ends up with a rather inaccurate sense of who they really are contrast that with a set of uh, characteristics that go with the growth mindset. These are improvers. They're people who want to stretch. They see uh, mistakes as something that clever people make or people trying to do their best make. And providing they learn from them, they see them as being useful. Uh, they're very keen to push themselves to the end of their comfort zone. They're resilient. 
uh, and they're often uh, keen. So they're the kind of vet who would be on the phone to somebody else saying, I've just seen this. Have you ever come across anything like this? And they end up with a very accurate self-image. Uh, the growth mindset, I think, uh, is a kind of super mindset, a superpower. Now, if Carol Dweck had simply just lined us up and said there are two kinds of people, that would have been interesting, but not that helpful. Uh, the, the worrying thing that you might have in the back of your mind is that, well, what if I'm a fixed mindset person and I can't do anything about it? Well, luckily, um, Carol Dweck was able to show that that's not the case. You're not either born fixed or born growth mindset. And she located the mechanism by which you become less fixed and more growth mindset oriented. And it is the way that you give and receive feedback. So think back to your school days for a second. Think back to a moment when you were receiving an assignment back or an essay. If your teacher said to you, I'm going to imagine the teacher talking to me, well done, Lucas, uh, an A grade. Um, uh, what am I hearing? Well, I might have a flutter of pride, I hope, or pleasure. Um, but I'm really not hearing any feedback at all that is helping me to know in what way it was an A grade. Contrast that with, um, uh, well done, Lucas, I really like the way you, and then the sentence con continues with some specific tools or techniques or processes that I used, and possibly things that I did that I, were, uh, I was showing something that uh, I'd learned in my last lesson. Oh, and by the way, you got an A grade. This feedback is like good feedback in organizations. It's specific, it's actionable, uh, and it's qualitative. It helps me to know what I might do better as a consequence. And if I constantly hear that, I begin to get the sense that my destiny is in my control. And that if I practice and I work hard and I do things differently, I'm likely to get better. So that was the second thing that Carol Dweck showed us, the mechanism by which we do this. Uh, the third thing that she showed us in a school sense is that, by the way, it's not those who constantly show us how good they are with the fixed mindset, even if they are the A grades, who do well or better in public examinations and in life as it happens. It's the people who are set on improvement who do better in life and do better in exams. And I hypothesize that the same is probably true in your service. It's certainly true in many others. Now, one other idea, the idea of an outlier. I think this is really helpful. Uh, and this is at the heart of improvement, the understanding that uh, we'll all sit on a, 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 a series of bar charts or a, a process chart or a map or, or a description of what's okay through to what's absolutely outstanding. And if you've not read Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers, it's a, it's a great read. And one of the things he's arguing throughout is that we can learn a lot from the outliers, uh, from those who are um, significantly better than us. And we can learn a lot by understanding what it is that they're doing. Um, in in um, uh, research methodology, that's often referred to as positive deviance. So I'd be saying to you, if you're really set on improvement, who's the best that you know in your practice? Who's the best that you know in your county? Who's the best that you know in your specialism? Because they're the kind of people you want to hang out with. By the way, quality improvement isn't just something that works because you give it a badge of quality improvement or QI as it's increasingly called. 
Here's a, a very well-known uh, couple of researchers, Mary Dixon Woods and Graham Martin. Mary leads the new center in um, Cambridge, uh, arguing in the hospital journal um, that not all QI leads to improvement. So just simply using a tool doesn't necessarily mean that you're improving it. So just a caveat that this is not um, a quick fix or a quick remedy. This requires serious change, cultural change, and uh, often, as with everything in life, uh, leadership. So if there is one kind of um, super habit, the growth mindset, what might it look like to be an improver? What kind of habits of mind and, and indeed action might you demonstrate? Well, I want to share with you the model that I've developed with the Health Foundation uh, and see if it, it um, uh, lands with you, see if it speaks to you. So here, and you can see I like circular models. I like them, by the way, because they don't have, an, have a hierarchy. And just as with uh, uh, the work I've done on engineering, I'm trying to unpack a concept in a way that begins to make sense um, and can be communicated. Because uh, what we're talking about here is not just a set of beliefs, but the uh, leadership capability of bringing others along with us. Let us just imagine that this is a clock face for a second and let me walk you around the model and see if it resonates with you in your working life. So um, improvers, I would like to suggest, have a set of five core habits, each one of which breaks down to more recognizably practical activities. So improvers, if we're starting at 12 o'clock and working around as if it were a conventional clock face, um, know that although they may see what needs to be done, just telling others to do it won't necessarily work. So they need to read the rooms. They need to understand and empathize with those around them and what others might see as barriers or possibilities. And then they need to be facilitative, not telling, but engaging with and persuading and creating context in which others can learn something. They need to be comfortable with conflict because quite often they might be saying something that is taking the group, the organization, the individual away from their current position. They also, I suggest, need to be resilient. They need to be able to hold fast, to um, uh, uh, remain their sense, retain their sense of optimism, to take appropriate risks and to put up with the fact, to tolerate the fact that not always do we know in any kind of caregiving, whether it's for human beings or for animals, do we absolutely know it's the right answer. They need to be creative too, not just in generating ideas, but in critical thinking, knowing which ideas uh, the evidence suggests are good ideas. And creativity is normally a team sport. So they need to know how to get the best out of others. They need to be systems thinkers. We'll come on to that uh, finally, um, able to make connections. So it's not just fix this problem here, but see it as a bigger system and consequently accept the fact that systems may need to change. And most profoundly and most importantly, they need to be learners, not just uh, uh, problem finders, but also solution makers, constantly reflective. In fact, uh, the kind of learner who after a day, a hard day, maybe staying on because you were dealing with uh, uh, an owner or an animal in some distress, still at that moment saying, you know what, I wonder if we should have done it that way rather than this way. Or um, let's just take a moment, shall we, to stop and reflect to see 
uh, what we were thinking about when we um, chose to take that decision rather than this decision. Um, if you're interested in that, the habits of an improver can be Googled uh, and uh, downloaded free from the Health Foundation. Um, if you wanted a shorter version of it, um, there's a, an open access, um, very short four pager uh, that I wrote for the BMJ Quality and Safety um, Journal, which uh, might be of interest to you. Again, it's uh, open access if you're interested. This model is now commended and widely used. Here's the chief medical officer in Scotland uh, as a model for clinicians in, in Scotland. Uh, it's used widely in training as a reflection tool. Just think how you might use it, for example. Um, so if you were thinking about your practice, your team, you might be saying as a team, which of these habits do we have? Who's particularly strong in influencing? Who's particularly strong in coming up with good ideas and being creative? And, and of course, no one individual has all of these things. They would be a paragon um, and possibly are quite hard to be with. But the team, the practice probably needs to have these. Um, it's also used here in, um, in Ireland, in, in Southern Ireland, again, as, as a model for um, professional development and for leadership development uh, across, across the country. Now, um, why do we need to even think about these things? Well, I want to make an argument now which says the reason that habits are important is precisely because of the, the, the phrase habit change and that habit change is hard. If you think about the most obvious thing pre-pandemic, although it's become even more important during the pandemic, the thing that we all knew that in hospitals we had to sort out was the fact that um, not all caregivers and clinicians were regularly sanitizing their hands. Now, uh, you know, we've known for quite a long time, haven't we? The scientific knowledge has been there uh, about germs and about infection control. We also have the skills, do we not, uh, to, to know how to use gel or to wash our hands uh, appropriately. Uh, the question then becomes not whether we have the knowledge or the skill, but whether or not we are actually disposed to put those, that knowledge and that skill into action. And here, I think it helps to understand um, the nature of habit, the nature of what I like to think of as a disposition. Here's some work I've been doing in Australia where I was doing quite a lot of work with the school system. Uh, and this may be a useful model to you. So um, when we're thinking about improvement, there will inevitably be some knowledge. Um, that knowledge might be the knowledge of a new tool and some skill, how you might use that skill. So how would you, how would you use a, a driver diagram or a, or a process map in your practice? Um, uh, those would be important things uh, that kind of baseline knowledge and skill. But then the next stage is not just whether you know what and know how, but whether you're actually able to do that in the context, in a busy practice. And then, and here's where I'm, I'm going, the most important thing, obviously, is not just whether you can do it, but whether you choose to do it and whether you choose to do it routinely. Now we're entering something which is much closer to culture, isn't it? Now, in my next slide, I do have a picture of a naked woman. So I need to give you that warning so that you can look away if you do not wish to see her. Here goes. Look away now if you don't want to see her. Um, at this window, there is a naked woman. Can you see her? I wonder if you can. Many people can. In fact, of course, there is no woman at the window. There is uh, a pot plant sitting on a shelf. 
and the pot plant's fronds look a bit like a woman's hair. There's a curtain, there's a cat, uh, there's a wine glass and there's some underwear. There is in fact no woman at that window. But whenever I've used this image, and it comes from a book that Guy Claxton and I wrote for the BBC quite a while back, um, I find that most people can see the woman. And if I now see, uh, if I now tell you or remind you that there is no woman at that window, and if we were in the pleasurable situation of being all in the same room together, I could see your faces, I would be, I bet that most of you will still see the woman at the window, despite the fact that you are rational scientists to a woman and to a man, many of you. Well, of course, there is no woman at the window, but this illustrates the fact that the human mind quickly gets set on the way it sees things. So habit change requires us to help people to unsee things, to see the world in a different way. Um, there's a very uh, nice saying that George Bernard Shaw has that uh, in a sense, in an ironic sense, we all need unreasonable people, the grumps around us, so that we can uh, have some kind of uh, grit in the oyster uh, to persuade people that they need to change. Uh, and from a psychological perspective, a reminder that uh, change is not an external phenomenon. It's us inside ourselves coming to terms with something that's happening within us. So if you're suggesting to a colleague that she or he might change their practice, then superficially that may seem to be an external thing. It's very often wrapped up with how they're seeing the world inside. There's a nice formula here, which you as leaders might like to hang on to, uh, because in all organizations, there will be people who resist change. They're the capital R, R for resistance. And David Gleisher's formula is a bit mathematical, but a bit commonsensical. And his formula is about how we overcome the resistors in an organization. And his formula goes like this. We need to understand um, our dissatisfaction and their dis dissatisfaction with the status quo. The V is for vision, and we need to be able to say why we want to do something differently. And the F is for first steps. So if you're trying to make anybody change or help anybody change or persuade anybody to change, it helps if you can say, look, if we want to improve our service or our care, then I think we've all agreed that we're not quite happy with the way we do X. And what we imagine, here's the V coming up, is a different world in which we do it like this. So a practical first step is let's all use this tool or this process so that we can uh, overcome our uh, inbuilt resistance to change. Um, in fact, um, if change is just left as an abstract, as a kind of miracle, in fact, people talk about, yeah, 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 yeah we're doing this already, aren't we? then that normally means that they're not. And they're normally meaning that they're not being precise enough or explicit enough about what the nature of the improvement process is. So here's part of the knowledge and part of the skill that we need. One of the things that um, I found with health caregiving, and I wonder whether it's the same with animal caregiving, is that it helps if we have a theory of change. So I've adapted the theory of change that we came up with at the Health Foundation and I wonder if this works for you. So that if we are clearly able to articulate the kind of habits with which improvers have and the knowledge and skills, then it's much better to think as leaders about the kind of learning that they might need and the methods that might be most helpful. So that we, we build improvement capability and so that all of our teams embrace an ethic of learning uh, and well, you can read the rest of it. And, and that's, I guess, my underpinning argument to me to you.
Um, and I want to move shift now into this final um, part of my talk onto the learning that's needed to make this happen. Remember air travel? In the days of air travel, we'd have a safety video, wouldn't we? That said, essentially, if we hit turbulence, a um, face mask will drop down, an oxygen mask rather, um, and I'd like you to put it on yourself before you put it on your child. Often as an adult seems a rather strange thing, but a helpful idea, a kind of proper selfishness that to make others safe, we have to look after ourselves. And I think that's why I come back to the habits of an improver. To make the animals in our care safe and to make their owners feel happier and more comfortable and confident about the way we deal with this, I think these kind of habits become really, really important. And my, my call to you is, or my question to you is, what might that look like for you? What would it look like if everything you did was set on learning in your practice or everything you did was set on thinking about how you could be more facilitative and bring all of your colleagues on board to the way that you want to work? Might a habits of mind perspective help us to think more about the kind of learning that we offer people, because I think the danger of QI and quality improvement, much as I'm a big fan of it, is that it can simply mean that we add more stuff into the professional development that we offer our staff. And that's fine, but I think that it's at least as much about mindset as it is about stuff. So our goal, I think, is to make improvement normal rather than to make it a project or to make it a tool. So I want to close, I want to end with the idea that there are, a pedagogy is just a, a word meaning teaching and learning methods. So that the idea that there are certain kind of um, symbolically important, um, structurally important um, ways of learning that can help us here. Because what we're talking about here isn't as simple as, well, we just need to teach them some new knowledge or some new skill. What we're talking about is uh, what Aristotle calls kind of practical wisdom and situational awareness. That, that hunch that we get that in this context, with this situation, this might be the best thing, the best way of proceeding. Of course, that's expertise, isn't it? Um, it's what David Perkins calls sensitivity to occasion. So we hit a certain context and something prompts us to act in a certain way that is likely to be uh, one that will produce a better result. In a medical sense, the general sense is that the current learning and teaching methods aren't up to it. The current training methods aren't up to it. They're too much about content transmission, didactic, and they're, they're too far removed from the reality of, in this case, uh, being healthcare givers, but in your case, looking after animals. And I wonder if the same is true for you. So the idea here is of there being certain teaching and learning methods that would be really good for helping you and your colleagues become better at this, if that's indeed where you'd like to go. Let me take you back to the engineering model I gave you way back. Um, engineers have an engineering design process, and that's the kind of archetype of what they do. And if you were thinking about the habits of mind, if you were trying to develop engineers to become better systems thinkers, better, better adapters and so forth, then these are the kind of adult learning methods you might be using with them. So if you wanted to help them to become better visualizers, 
then you'd be using modeling and mental rehearsal and infographics and so forth. Now, when we're thinking about quality improvement, uh, I think the model that we may well have is um, of, our, of our practice, of our busy practice and how we can um, think about that. And, and from, from the health example, um, we concluded that the best way of doing it would be to provide sustained opportunities within your context. So in number one there, you might say, well, one of the ways in which we could build improvement capability would, would be to give um, opportunities within the day job for these kind of things to be learned and practiced, to have coached assignments, to, uh, to gather together as a team, maybe to find mentors who are um, further down the line here who might help us. And the core of this, I suspect in uh, veterinary services as well as in healthcare, is this iterative process of improvement, of plan, do, study, and act. So my question to you would be, within a veterinary concept context, what might the um, learning methods be for you to develop improvers in your practices? How might you, and this is a conversation piece because I don't know enough about your context, if you like these habits of mind, how might you develop them? Um, uh, in a broader sense, just to pull back out as a, in, in terms of leadership, I think we're really talking about creating every practice as a learning organization. Peter Senge said that people continually, uh, people who are, who are in a learning organization continually expand their capacity to create the results they truly desire, where new and expansive patterns of thinking are nurtured. In a healthcare system, Don Berwick, the founder of Much To Do With Improvement said, the NHS should continually reduce patient harm by embracing wholeheartedly an ethic of learning. Take out the word patient, and put, or keep the word patient, but focus on all the animals you care for. And I think the same could be held to be the case. So by systems thinking, he means not just fix the individual problem, but think about the whole system. By personal mastery, he means encouraging individuals who see learning as their job. By mental models, he means having common assumptions, if you like, a theory of change that says if we do that, then that's likely to happen. Having a shared vision means recognizing that a lot of this is about communication and team learning. Well, that's kind of obvious, really, isn't it? It speaks for itself. Recognizing that dialogue and Carol Dweck's giving and receiving feedback is at the heart of what we need to do. By the way, I have written rather a lot of books. And if you're watching this as a parent, um, I'm very keen that we start all this kind of thing much earlier on in the education system. Here am I with my colleague and friend Guy Claxton, imagining some of you may have seen the film Educating Rita, imagining that Rita has a, has a, a granddaughter and she goes to a school near you. And as well as becoming a great mathematician and scientist and geographer, is she also learning these, if you like, desirable habits, life habits, improvement habits? Ultimately, I think this is not a fad. This is not something separate or new or distinct or different. This is common sense, but it's an elegant interweaving, a bit like the sculptor Andy Goldsworthy has here, of improvement common sense into the life, the busy life of being a vet and all the knowledge and skill that that requires. And so I commend that image to you. 
It's been great to have been supported by RCBS Knowledge. Uh, lots of ways in which you can find out more, uh, more about the kind of things I've been talking about. If you're interested in anything I've said, um, then there are my contact uh, details. Thanks so much for listening. I'm going to stop sharing my screen uh, and see if there's anything we'd like to talk more about. Thank you. You can find out more about quality improvement and free resources to help you embed quality improvement techniques in your practice at rcvsknowledge.org forward slash quality hyphen improvement.